0: Now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. My name is Seth Moskowitz, and I'm an associate editor at Persuasion. I wrote an article this week called Talking About Fetterman's Stroke Is Not Ableism, which is about John Fetterman, the Democratic candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania, who had a stroke in May. Fetterman's health condition came into the national news this week because of an interview that he did with NBC. In that interview, Fetterman used a software on a computer in front of him that transcribed the questions he was being asked so he could read them because he was having difficulty with something called auditory processing. But that itself isn't what actually brought Fetterman's condition into the national news. What did that were comments by the reporter when she was introducing the segment in which she said that Fetterman was having difficulty understanding what she was saying when they were chatting before the interview. And this is what caused the storm of criticism from activists and journalists who called that reporter ableist. But what they were really trying to do was to shut down any conversation about Fetterman's condition and how it might impact his job in the Senate. But this is a ridiculous thing to do. It's perfectly acceptable for reporters to be reporting on candidates' health conditions. And it's also perfectly acceptable for reporters to be reporting on a candidate's health status. And it's an important thing for voters to know about. Unfortunately, some people did go too far and make jokes at Fetterman's expense, like Fox News' Tucker Carlson and Mehmet Oz. And this is obviously unacceptable, But that doesn't mean that all talk about Fetterman's disability should be out of bounds or treated as a taboo. Candidates should be as transparent as possible about their health status and what it will mean for their work once they're elected, because this is something that voters deserve to know about. I hope you'll give my article a read and let me know what you think.
1: Seth Moskowitz's piece called Talking About John Fetterman's Stroke Is Not Ableism was published by Persuasion to learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion, and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
2: My guest today is Liz Smith. Liz is a veteran political strategist who is perhaps best known for being the master strategist behind Pete Buttigieg's run for president in 2020. She's also the author of Any Given Tuesday, a political love story. We talked about what political candidates should do, what political candidates shouldn't do, how you take a talented but obscure candidate, as Mayor Pete was in 2016, 2017, and make them into a major presidential contender. And of course, the perennial topic of this podcast what Democrats can or should do to beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump in 2024 and beyond. Liz Smith, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: I'm going to start with a very simple question. What are the main things political candidates should do but aren't doing? And what are the main things that they shouldn't do but are doing?
1: (sighs) Okay, the number one piece of advice that I give to candidates, and this shouldn't be rocket science, it shouldn't be this complicated, is to just be normal. By being normal, it means talk like a normal person, you know, communicate in simple ways, communicate in simple concepts. And for some reason, that's a lot harder for a lot of political candidates than it should be. And, you know, keep in mind, I worked for Pete Buttigieg, a guy who is a Rhodes Scholar, but he was someone who, like Bill Clinton, another Rhodes Scholar, had a gift at taking really complex ideas and reducing them to points that, everyone could understand whether he's on CNN with Fareed Zakaria or he's at a think tank or in front of a crowd in rural red Iowa. And that is something that we sometimes don't do enough As a party, and I think the Republican Party falls prey to this sometimes, but we do get into sort of wonky speak, as Carvel says, faculty lounge speak. So, look, I just think it's important to act like a normal person, speak like a normal person, and it's something politicians don't do enough.
2: Why is that so hard? So that seems like an obvious piece of advice. I'm sure that you know candidates have heard that, and yet we see over and over again. These prominent Democratic candidates and some Republican candidates failing to do that? Is it because their social milieu is so removed from the rest of the country? Is it because they're so worried about one wrong word earning the eye of some activist group? Why is it hard?
1: So I think it's a few things. I'll go to the easiest, simplest one. So I'm going to sort of go backwards. Speaking in front of a camera, speaking in front of a crowd is still really daunting to a lot of people. And if they were just talking to friends around a dinner table or at a bar, you know, they would speak one way. But the second a camera turns on, the second they're in front of a microphone, they feel this need to speak in this stilted way, or they're just terrified of making a gaffe. So they end up speaking in this political gobbledygook that doesn't make any sense. That's like a very simple reason why. but. To your first point, I think there are two things. One is there's still this sort of outdated view. You know, you have a lot of political candidates who maybe watch too much of the West Wing or had advisors who watch too much of the West Wing, think that the way you got to communicate with voters is in like poetry. And unless you're a poet, You should not engage in any poetry. Don't try to write in poetry. Don't try to speak in poetry. And, you know, these candidates who try to sound always like John F. Kennedy or Barack Obama. And if you're not John F. Kennedy or Barack Obama, don't try to speak like them. So I think there are candidates who try too hard to, you know, sound special or eloquent. But, yeah. There is a problem, certainly in the Democratic Party, where you do have a lot of advisors who come from backgrounds where... And like, look, I went to an Ivy League college. I grew up in Bronxville, New York. The difference between me and a lot of other Democratic operatives is that I cut my teeth in red states, in places like South Dakota, Missouri, Ohio, Kentucky. And so I think I understand how to you know, speak to voters in a way that is not rooted in SAT words or in advocacy group language right and i wrote an op-ed for the washington post about this recently which is that like now is not the time to change how we talk about abortion because i was seeing these special interest groups put out things saying you know that saying pro-choice is harmful language you need to say pro-decision
2: that, that also seems so dumb because it's literally just pro-choice and pro-decision is the same damn word it's just decision has three syllables and choice is one, but I was trained in part in philosophy. I love to, you know, tease apart the differences between different concepts. I have no idea of that, what the difference between choice and decision is supposed to be.
1: Exactly. But you know what the difference is? Is that No one has ever heard anyone describe themselves as pro-decision. And so you do see staffers who sort of come out of this advocacy world who have sort of surround themselves with people who only share their worldviews, think like them, talk like them, and live in bubbles where they don't communicate with normal people. And by normal people, I mean people who don't live and breathe politics, people who don't live and breathe advocacy group communications. And so I think that distorts how politicians talk a little bit.
2: Since you mentioned staffers, I've talked to a few senior strategists who've told me a lot of the time the candidates know what the right thing to do is, but they're worried that if they don't take a particular kind of position or if they publicly oppose a position that is fashionable on parts of the far left, then their own staffers are going to rebel against them and sort of take them down. Have you found that to be a problem or, you know, another way of putting it, if democratic candidates often don't talk like normal people enough, and if they use this verbiage and if they bandwagon on some activist causes that actually are unpopular in the broader population, is it a problem of the principles of the main candidates or is it often a problem of staffers, consultants, and the wider ecosystem?
1: It really depends on the situation. Sometimes it's a mixture of the two. Any real good candidate should not feel like they're held captive to their staff, but you certainly do see situations like that. You know, a great example that almost read like parody was recently in the New York Mayoral, there was like a DSA candidate, Diane Morales, who is embracing like the most left-wing positions on everything, using like the most left-wing jargon that I would have to Google to understand and her staff rebels because she's not leftist enough for them. And literally we're doing like protests outside her office with like burning sage. And it was basically like you tried to do a sitcom of DSA and the far left getting out of control. It would be like that. But I've been on campaigns where there is definitely tension between campaign leadership and rank and file staffers. And, you know, a good example was on Pete's campaign. We did have staffers who usually younger staffers who came out of the advocacy world who wanted, you know, Pete to use terms like Latinx, to use terms like women, where you replace the E with an X. I don't know how you pronounce that. But ultimately, you know, you know, Pete's the principal and I had a certain view on this. You know, I've worked in Dominican and Puerto Rican politics and I gotta tell you, those men and women don't use terms like Latinx, right? So I was a big advocate for using terms that people actually use, whether it's Hispanic, Latino. The term Latino to me is a little simplistic because Dominicans are very different from Venezuelans, very different from Mexican Americans, very different from Puerto Rican Americans yada, yada, yada. But, you know, Pete ultimately made the call. No, we're going to use the term Latino, not Latinx, because that's how most people communicate. But there are some principals who are afraid of their staff, are afraid of revolting. They are afraid of sort of the Twitter group think, right? Which is that if you say one wrong thing, that there's just going to be this awful left wing pylon and, oh my God, are you going to get canceled? And it's just like, I don't know. Sometimes when you see the people who engage in those pylons, you realize that if they're mad at you, you're probably doing the right thing and saying the right thing and saying things that will actually resonate with the real world.
2: So I think you've answered what should candidates do that they don't do. I think the inverse question that I'd asked was what shouldn't they do that they do do? So what are the big mistakes that candidates make?
1: candidates themselves should really limit how much they are on social media because More and more. And this is a problem too, because it's a good thing that we are getting more younger people into politics. And it's a good thing that younger candidates are more fluent in social media and modern technology than, you know, when you have those hearings with Facebook and you see senators talking about it, like with absolutely no understanding about how those things work. But there are some downsides to being too online. And there is a Distortionary effect that happens on social media and a really toxic group think that unless you embrace the position that is popular online, which is oftentimes the most far left position, that you're a Republican in disguise, that you can't be trusted, that if you take your cues from the online group think, you are going to be extremely, extremely, extremely out of touch with voters. And we saw that a little bit with some prominent Democrats and Democratic groups embracing absolutely toxic, nonsensical slogans like defund the police. And there was a time when if you went online and you said defund the police is a really bad slogan that's going to backfire on Democrats, you would have gotten absolutely piled on. Now, I think people have come to realize after seeing the millions and millions of dollars that were spent against Democrats who never even had embraced that just because Certain Democrats had gone out there and embraced it. They understand that that was stupid, but that's a problem that, every campaign is going to have to deal with. And it's not just the candidates, it's the staff. And it does have a problem because like a 20 something year old staffer is not going to have the wherewithal to understand that just because these Twitter accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers or these thousands of people who are piling on are saying these things doesn't mean that it's held by the majority of voters. And what's really important is to get out and talk to the voters you're trying to appeal to and not just think that winning Twitter every day is how you win an election. If, if winning Twitter is your goal, you're probably not going to win an election.
2: Yeah, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but one of the most dangerous things about Twitter and some other social media platforms is that it gives a sort of simulacrum of being public opinion. So 20 years ago, editors and newspapers knew that letters to the editors are not representative of the average reader. But because they weren't public, it was easier to ignore them. And yet now somehow because they're public and because you can go on Twitter and it just feels like this is the nation's town square where everybody debates, You know, even if rationally you know that the opinions there are those of the 1% most politically motivated people and all kinds of different ideological extremes, it feels like this is what the debate is and this is what public opinion is. And so it's so easy to get fooled into sort of following its lead.
1: Yeah. And there's so much social pressure, I feel like, to conform. Because if you don't say the same thing as everyone, then people will attack you. But like voters are obviously a lot more moderate, you know, in the Democratic Party than how they're represented on Twitter. If you look at study after study after study, it shows that people on Twitter are by and large, younger, more likely to live in cities, more likely to have college postgraduate degrees. They were in the 2020 primaries, more likely to be Sanders and Warren supporters. So it pulls the debate very much to the left. And social media also incentivizes people to say the most provocative things. Because if you just say, what the most winning thing is with voters, which is let's get your out-of-pocket healthcare costs down. You're not going to get a lot of retweets on that. Or like, for instance, on immigration. If you just say, hey, you know, let's get immigration reform done. Let's make sure our borders secure. You're going to get a lot fewer retweets than if you say, Ron DeSantis is a human trafficker, modern day Hitler. And so social media sort of does incentivize people to say the most absurd out there things without regard for maybe how it will impact the party as a whole.
2: I have some similar views. And whenever I express them, I get pushback from my friends who are more to the left saying, "Oh, look, you know, you're telling the Democrats to moderate, you're telling the Democrats to really think carefully about the messaging and how they can reach ordinary voters. But you don't tell Republicans to do that, you know, and they're doing this crazy messaging. So what's the difference? And of course, partially, it's that I'm not in the business of advising Republicans, because I prefer the Democratic candidates, despite some disagreements I may have with them. But I guess to put the question to you in its strongest form, why is it that Donald Trump goes around the country saying whatever comes to his mind, not moderating his message in any way, saying many unpopular things, and he's elect revival? Whereas, you know, Democrats who go around and they just give sort of red meat to the base all the time and they say things that are not popular among the general population, but perhaps popular among these parts of the base, you know, they lose elections. Why should we think that? Or do you think that moderation pays on both sides of the political spectrum?
1: Look, I think it does play on both sides of the political spectrum. Trump has a unique bond with his base, right? Like, That is as strong a bond as you'll see with any politician. And again, I said I avoid using the social media hyperbole, but there is a little bit of a cult of personality going on with the guy, right? And he's got a very vice-like grip on his base. But ultimately, look at 2020. And if you look at the best two recent cycles for Democrats... In very different ways, it was 2018 and 2020. And why did Democrats do well in 2018? If you look at the ads that the Democrats who picked up Republican seats ran, whether it's Colin Allred in Texas or Abigail Spanberger or Lauren Underwood or Alyssa Slotkin or Mikey Sherrill, they weren't going out and you know running on the. Medicare for all and Green New Deal and um, you know, the most lefty social issues. They were going out and talking about how they wanted to protect Obamacare, how they wanted to create jobs. It's not again a social media message, but that resonated with people and, and they could just make it a choice between, hey, we're trying to do these good things for you that will put more money in your pocket. The Republicans are trying to take away your healthcare. And in 2020 similarly Joe Biden didn't go out there with some raging lefty message. You know, he's sort of the embodiment of the more moderate wing, more reasonable wing of the Democratic Party and I think that is why he was able to get, you know, a lot of swing voters, a lot of independents, a lot of you know people in the suburbs who otherwise would Maybe think about voting for a Republican. So for Democrats, I think that we've got to look at what has worked for us. And when we have embraced more moderate candidates, we have tend
2: to do better. So you've run many campaigns, been involved in even more campaigns, but you're most famous for having been running Pete Buttigieg's campaign. You know, he went from being the mayor of a you know, reasonably small town to being a very serious presidential contender. What were the steps? What was sort of when you were sitting down at the very beginning of this and you're thinking, look, I have a candidate here who's really eloquent, who's really smart, um, but who doesn't have all that much name recognition, who seems like a long shot candidate. What, what strategy did you come up with together to turn him into uh, you know, somebody who has a real support base and somebody who came close to winning the 2020 presidential primaries in the Democratic Party?
1: Yeah. So when I met him, I first met him, you know, it was over the phone in December of 2016, when he was so like years before he ended up running for president. I was... Sometimes people don't understand quite how long I was with Pete. He was thinking about running for DNC chair, and that was a long shot race for him. And one thing that was immediately clear to me was that He was a very unique communicator and very different from what the Democrats were putting out at the time. So December 2016 is when the Democratic Party, sort of rightly so, was in full freakout mode because no one could believe that we had lost to Donald Trump. And, you know, I think it wasn't just the Democratic Party. The media was in full freakout mode too because so few people had predicted this and all the polls were wrong and Donald Trump seemed to fly in the face of everything that we thought America is or was or what voters wanted, and yet he was able to prevail. So Democrats sort of overcorrected, overreacted, I think, in that moment. And you, in the weeks afterwards, certainly in the years afterwards, you had Democrats going out there and saying, to beat Trump, we have to be like Trump. And we got to yell, we got to scream. You know, when they go low, we go lower, we kick them in the teeth. But Pete... From the minute I met him while the Democratic Party is going through all of this, understood that not that he was thinking about running for president then, David Axelrod always talks about the theory of opposites, right? Which is that in presidential races, what voters tend to do is they flip between people who are the complete opposites. So you go from Bill Clinton, who is, you know, yes, he can be an everyman, but he was a very cerebral guy, to George W. Bush, who's more, you know... Shoot from the hip, cowboy. No one would say that he was particularly intellectual, but then you go back to Barack Obama, very cerebral guy, brilliant orator. Then you go to Donald Trump, right? And so what Pete understood was that to beat Trump, whether you're just a rank and file Democrat like him or a Democratic Party leader, you've got to offer counter programming and sort of be the antidote to him. And so he approached from the get-go, even when he was just running for a DNC chair, he approached Trump very differently from other Democrats, which is he understood, one, not to play Trump's game. And Trump's game is say something outrageous, watch people's heads explode, dominate the news cycle for days, and then rinse and repeat. And that was how he was able to be so successful, I think, in that primary, because he just did this over and over and over again, you know, says the thing about McCain being shot down and people freak out and then says this thing about Kazir Khan, says this. And everyone, of course, freaks out when the comments are abhorrent.
2: And one of the things that people never understood about Trump, which seemed very simple to me, is that, you know, a lot of politicians are very, very unpopular. That's just the nature of a game in the Internet age and probably before that as well. And a lot of the time, I think, with Trump, he would say things that most Americans actually dislike. But then all of the people they hate responded so strongly to it. And sometimes, for the underlying comments were horrible hyperbolically, but they were like, if these guys all hate him so much and I hate those guys, then there must be something OK about him.
1: The one thing that drives me nuts right now, and this is a tangent, I'll get back to Pete in a second, but is... In slow motion, I'm sort of seeing the same thing happening with Ron DeSantis. And he's picking these fights. He's saying abhorrent things, doing abhorrent things. But then watching all the same characters, whether in the media, Democratic politics, the punditry class, whatever it is, have the same freak out. And then it's like, then everything revolves around Ron DeSantis. And he's setting the debate around an issue where Democrats are probably weakest right now with voters, immigration. So we can get back to that in a little bit. But with Pete, he sort of had a fundamental understanding that the best counter-programming to Trump would be to be the antidote to him in terms of you know style, presentation, how he talked, but also in terms of policy, and he embodied that. He was a guy who served his country. He is an eminently decent guy of faith. He's um, you know a loving husband. He is someone who is well educated intellectual, speaks seven languages, does not hide from that. You know, there was a time where when John Kerry would speak French, the Republicans would run ads against it. And so I think candidates wouldn't speak foreign languages in public. But Pete sort of embraced that while, as I mentioned before, he was, I think, really brilliant at being able to take very complex ideas and communicate them in simple ways for voters. So we understood that he sort of was a unique communicator and uniquely skilled at it, and that he had no name ID No national fundraising base. So the traditional ways you can sort of rise up in presidential politics is that like people know you, you got money. The one thing that we did have access to was the media. And because he was such a good communicator, we essentially just put him out there as much
2: as possible. One tangent, because you call him a very good communicator and that is his reputation. That's how people see him. What makes him a good communicator, right? Why is it that when you first spoke to him, you were like, oh, this guy has a special talent for this that goes beyond your average good candidate, your average good politician?
1: So during the presidential campaign, I remember a prominent Democratic consultant contacted me after one of the debates and said, you know, could you like tell him to pause before he gives an answer? Because it's almost robotic. It's like almost robotic what a perfect answer he's giving. And it it almost sounds rehearsed because no one can just like give an answer like that off the top of their head or in the moment. But that sort of is how his brain works is that it's like with a good baseball player, right? like they can see a baseball that's hurtling at them a hundred miles an hour in slow motion and figure out how to hit it. That's how Pete is with questions. So I think one, he's got that skill of like sort of parrying questions. I think he's got the skill of being able to distill very complex ideas into simpler ones. And I think he also is not afraid To say things in different ways from other people and to say things that sometimes might not be popular with everyone, right? Like when he was asked about, well, you're gay, how do you eat Chick-fil-A? He's like, I disapprove of their politics, but I kind of like their chicken. And, you know, that's when you have a lot of Democratic candidates going out there and saying, oh my God, you boycott Chick-fil-A as if that's going to solve homophobia in America, right? And so I think his approach to all of those things, like just being thoughtful. And another thing too is... He was extremely comfortable in his skin and his values. And this gets back to talking about how he was able to distill complex messages into simpler language, things people could understand, which is that he could always bring things back to basic values like freedom, fairness, faith family. And he is a person of faith. And so he would talk about faith a lot on the campaign trail. He is someone who is unabashedly patriotic and would talk about how Democrats need to Really be the patriotic party. And so being able to talk about complex things within a values framework versus just sort of like a checklist of policy ideas was really powerful. And it makes it a lot easier, I think, for voters to understand and also voters who don't necessarily identify with the Democratic Party to identify with.
2: That's interesting that you both sort of say that he brings it back to values. And sort of the values you mentioned, because I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt, who, of course, has been a guest on this podcast. And he has this old point from the 2000s that, you know, Republicans play in all of the sort of moral foundations that all humans have and all five of them. And Democrats often play on equality and fairness, which, of course, are very important values. They don't talk much about sanctity. They don't talk much about loyalty and those other kind of fundamental values. And it's interesting, but I think Pete finds ways of trying to explain why democratic positions and policies the Democrats favor are justified not just by things like care and fairness and so on, but also by things like patriotism, also by things like faith. And that gives people who are perhaps more moderate or who are independents permission to vote for him. Or perhaps it gives people who are not going to vote for him permission not to hate him quite as much as they might hate other Democrats. And that's, I think, also helpful because of the effect that it has on family members and so on.
1: I totally agree. And what's fascinating is when you do that, it doesn't mean that your positions are necessarily more moderate or more to the right. It's just that you're communicating them in a way that more people can embrace and understand and, you know, gives them permission structure. And that's why, you know, frankly, like a lot of people when he started running were like, oh, well, are people in Red World, Iowa going to vote for an openly gay man? And like, frankly, those are the areas that led him to win the Iowa caucuses.
2: So I threw for a long tangent at the point where you said, because he's such a good communicator, you just have to do a lot of media. So that's great. When he's very present in media, how do you build the campaign from there?
1: So started out just doing this and went into every media hit with the goal of, you know, you got to move the ball forward. You got to sort of knock this out of the park. And when he finally got a CNN town hall, that's the first time he gets... 45 minutes, national platform. And of course, cable news ratings are what they are. Um, Most people don't watch cable news. But if you have a viral moment, if you have a great performance, then what happens on CNN doesn't just stay on CNN. It's going to get picked up everywhere. And so that was the moment that everything changed. You can sort of just map it to there. So from there, right, then his fundraising exploded. We'd set a modest frankly, sort of sad goal of raising a million dollars in the first fundraising quarter. But then within a couple of weeks, we raised $7 million. In the next quarter, he raised $24 million. And once you're able to raise that sort of money, then you're able to put together a good team and great operation. And we were able to, I think, to put together the best Iowa operation, but we continue to do things sort of differently. And it was always very important to him to never change who he was because what the staff said or what people online were saying. And he sometimes got blowback for it, right? And there was a big disconnect oftentimes I remember between sort of the online discourse, the discourse among political reporters in the bubble and voters on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire. And we really saw that in October, November, December of 2019, when he started to draw contrasts with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on Medicare for All, among other issues. And, you know, online, if you... Read the reaction, you would have thought the guy kicked a puppy on live TV and reporters were saying, oh, wow, wow, this is really going to hurt him in Iowa and New Hampshire. But then the reporters who actually went and spent time with voters on the ground were like, what the hell? Every voter I'm talking to is saying Pete Buttigieg is either one or two in their choices. And it showed this total disconnect. And why, one, if you know who you are, know what your values are, and two, are willing to stand by them and understand that they are rooted in common sense and in line with where the voters are, then that's your path to success. I think that's one of the reasons why, despite the fact that he was the youngest candidate, had the least experience on the national stage outside of everyone, but maybe Andrew Yang and I don't know, maybe Marion Williamson, although I guess she'd been a celebrity before, but having that sort of knowledge and that comfort in his own skin and comfort in his own values and belief systems, it was really, really valuable to him. And I think why he was able to do so well, because he avoided that sort of push and pull that we saw a lot of the other candidates get into. And when you engage in that you lose the most important thing you can have as a political candidate, which is your authenticity. Because voters can smell. The second you start saying stuff that you don't believe, they can see through it, you know? And thankfully, he never did that.
2: By the way, Medicare for all who wanted, I think, was a brilliant slogan.
1: Oh, yeah. And now you see that it's what most Democrats in competitive races, that's a policy that they're embracing. There was this, like, fake view of Medicare for all, though it was the most popular policy. Because if you're just asked in a poll, do you support Medicare for all? People are going to say, yeah, that sounds great. But what they don't understand is that Medicare for all means that then there's no private insurance option. The U.S. would be the only developed country or one of the only countries in the world to only just have only a public option. And most people who are on Medicare like my mom is one of them, you know, she also has private insurance add-ons. And then you have a lot of guys who work in unions and the unions have fought so hard to negotiate these great insurance programs. So once people understood the details, Medicare for all was an extremely toxic policy. And that's why less and less you see Democratic politicians embracing it and more and more them embracing Medicare for all who want it.
2: What do Democrats have to do to win in 2024?
1: Well, first, we got to win in 2022. So I'll answer that question. But to win in 2022, I think we've got to stay focused. I'm getting a little nervous. I was feeling really good up until about the last couple of weeks. And we're now starting to see the polls come back down to earth. And then all this immigration stuff recently has made me very, very nervous because the terrain was much more favorable for Democrats when we could talk about okay, yeah, there is inflation and that is going to be a problem going into the election. But like how- at least Democrats are trying to address it and that Democrats are trying to offer financial relief to the American people, whether it's allowing Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, capping the price of insulin for seniors, you know, all the stuff that was in the Inflation Reduction Act. And we could say, you know what the Republican agenda is to lower your costs? It is nothing. It is zero. They want your costs to go up as much as possible because they think it will help them win an election. And I think that was helping us out. There's no doubt like the biggest game changer in this election was the dobbs decision and it lit a fire under the democratic base and democrats aren't great at turning out in midterms generally but there was a certain sort of malaise among democratic voters they um but you you can't if you're a democratic voter you, it's really hard to say you can just sit this election out um and what we've also seen is that dobbs if you look in kansas right A majority of the voters who turned out in Kansas were Republicans, but the abortion measure lost by a lot. And so that means that also a lot of Republicans voted to protect a woman's right to choose. So I think it's helped us with the Democratic base. I think it's helped us with a lot of the independents that we would have otherwise lost. I sort of call them the Biden-Yunkin voters, you know, the voters who sort of would have just gone back to how they voted prior to Donald Trump. And it probably helped us with certain elements of the Republican Party, which is most people are not on the extremes of this issue. They believe that abortion should be safe, legal and rare, some common sense restrictions on it. Only 10 percent of voters support like a complete ban. And now the mainstream Republican candidates for governor for Senate are running universally on complete abortion bans, which is a disaster. What Democrats have been trying to do, which is to offer relief to people, whereas Republicans have been blocking all economic relief, how Democrats have been campaigning effectively on abortion and using it as a cudgel against Republicans, that was very favorable terrain for Democrats. And you really saw that in the polls. You saw that in individual polls and gubernatorial Senate races. You also saw it pop up in the generic ballot. But I'm very nervous now after seeing sort of immigration dominate the news the last 10 days that we can begin to sort of lose some of these advantages. And it speaks to why, and this will get to your 2024 question, but it speaks to why Democrats just cannot take the bait all the time from Republicans. We cannot let them define what the national debate is, because if we go into 2022 and there's a long time between now and the election, but early voting in a lot of these states is starting soon. If we go into the election with immigration as the top issue, we're screwed. Like I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you because voters give Republicans a massive, massive advantage in terms of how they handle immigration, which I understand is not rational because it is Republicans who have blocked immigration reform and who are partially to blame for this crisis. But Voters aren't always rational. And so we've got to stop taking their bait. We've got to focus on talking to people about how we're making their lives better, how the Republicans are out of touch on abortion and how if you elect these people, they want to take away your Democratic rights. Right. Like. We have candidates running for state legislature, running for governor, running for secretary of state, running for attorney general in states across the country who are essentially saying that if their states go to elect Democrats in the future, that they want to accept the election results. And even if they lose their elections, they're not going to accept the election results. And I understand democracy is not at the top of the list for voters. But if we can sort of simplify the message and make it clear that this isn't just about January 6th, this isn't just about 2020, this is about your right as a voter going forward, then I think we can bring it home a little more. So how we went in 2024 is a little bit of an extension of that.
2: Let me double click here for a moment and then push you on 2024. How do you effectively change the topic in politics? Because I often hear this advice, right? So look, like at the moment, the topic is immigration, if a topic is immigration, that really gives an advantage to Republicans. If you're a Democrat, if you're a Democratic advisor, you really want to change the topic to something like abortion or education or something where Democrats tend to do better. There's a version of this advice that political scientist called Shari Berman gives, who's been a frequent guest on this podcast, who I think is really smart, really right on on many topics. But she says, look, a lot of the left's problem is that we've started to talk a lot more about social issues, and it's much better when we talk about economic issues for the left. And so the left should talk much more about economic issues. My skepticism about that advice is that when voters perceive you as being out of touch on some issue that is important to them, and you simply change the topic, they don't trust anything else you say. Now, it seems to me that What you need to do is to neutralize those topics, right? To say, okay, look, we're going to do on immigration what it takes for you not to hate us. On cultural issues, we're going to do what it takes for you to trust us. We're reasonable people with decent, common sense values. And then we can change the topic. But it always seems to me like there's got to be a first step. If you try to change the topic before you've played defense on the issue in which you're weak, you just lose permission to speak about anything else.
1: Yes. So I do agree with that. And I think the response to the DeSantis from most Democrats has not been effective and they play this game. And Pete would always talk about this in, the 2020 campaign, which is that With Donald Trump, it's like if When you get into a back and forth with him When you give him oxygen, when you get into a fight with him It's like when you're a kid and you're playing With those finger traps, right? The harder you Pull, the more your fingers are going to get Stuck, and I feel like that that's the same Thing with DeSantis, which is If you're just yelling and screaming And huffing and puffing and Hyperventilating and going on One, you're giving him all the attention That he wants, but two, you're not Addressing the underlying problem, and you're not addressing the underlying reality, which is that voters don't trust Democrats to effectively handle immigration and the border. I'm not saying, again, I just want to caveat for people, just so it's not taken out of context. I'm, I want to ask this I'm not saying that it's necessarily rational, but it's the reality and ideal in reality. So, what I think makes more sense is for Democrats to acknowledge that. Things are not great, right? That we have way too many people coming over the border every day. That border towns are being thrown into chaos. They don't have the resources to handle this. And we need to understand that the frustration around the border is legitimate. And we need to have solutions that address that. And so one is acknowledging the frustration, saying it's real, coming up with solutions to address it. And then you can sort of pivot to, well, and, you know, Democrats are the ones who've been trying to address this for years. Republicans haven't lifted a frickin' finger to reform our immigration system. And part of the reason why we have this crisis at the border is because of the Republican Party and Republican leaders, the same ones who are putting this in the news today. I saw an interview with um congressman from Massachusetts, Jake Auchincloss. He was on Fox the other day. And he did a really good job of answering this. And he led with acknowledging that these frustrations are real and that Democrats should not ignore them and we cannot ignore them. And then Pivoted into this and that's the way that I would handle this and I think That was sort of my way of saying from a democratic operative's perspective, sort of what you were getting at, which is that you have to establish some credibility on the issue before you move on. You can't just yell and scream in like incomprehensible sort of grunts and whatever, and then just say abortion and think that you're going to change the topic of conversation. No, you've got to acknowledge the frustration that exists, the reality before you move on. And I would like to see a little bit more of that from Democrats and a little less hyperventilation.
2: That seems like great advice. And now I'm going to push you on 2024. So let's say we get through these midterms. Perhaps Democrats manage to hold the Senate. Perhaps Republicans take the House. That is the prediction at the moment. Of course, that could very easily change. What happens going into 2024? Do you think that Democrats should run Joe Biden? Do you think that Joe Biden should run again? And if Joe Biden doesn't run, then what should people look for in the primaries in a candidate who would be able to beat, whether it is Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or somebody else in 2024?
1: So I think Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, and I think you and I disagree on this point, but it would be completely ahistorical for him not to be the nominee. And- I understand that his numbers are still underwater right now. Look at Barack Obama's numbers in 2010. They were similar place. And at some points got worse. And I worked for him in 2012 and he won pretty handily in 2012, was able to come back and win. And, but at this point in 2010, I remember <laughs> someone, it's sort of ironic that there were like editorials being written. It was maybe right after the election, but there are editorials being written saying Barack Obama should not run for reelection instead Hillary Clinton should take the place which is really really funny in retrospect. But Barack Obama was able to, you know, successfully rehab his numbers and how he was able to do that was turning the election from a referendum into a choice. Democrats have done a better job in 2022 than they did in 2010 of making this more of a choice election versus a referendum. It took us a little while to get there. Took us a little while to get there, but I think over the last few months, we have done a much better job of putting Republicans on the defensive. I worked on a 2010 race in Ohio, and I can tell you just every day we outperformed Democrats nationally, but like Democrats just got destroyed in that election because it was seen purely as a referendum. Now- with Biden, why Biden 2024? So I think he's gonna run. I think he's looking back at history. He's looking at Obama, he's looking at Bush's numbers, he's looking at Clinton's numbers, he's looking at Reagan's numbers and seeing that, yeah, you know, presidents after the first couple of years of their term, they're usually their numbers sort of suck, right? I guess Bush that was a weird situation because of 9-11. But he's looking at history and seeing, okay, well, you can bounce back. And just because numbers right now aren't great doesn't mean that you won't be able to win the election. Um, But two is if you're a Democrat, what is the argument against Joe Biden? And one of the arguments I hear the most is, well, he's too old. And I guess my counter to that would be, well, okay, so age matters how? I think age matters if it affects your ability to get things done. So if that is what matters most about age in a lot of ways, then like I don't really think that applies here with Biden because he has had a very, very prolific last. Bunch of months and has signed into law a lot of important legislation, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, whether it's CHIPS. He's had some foreign policy wins, you know, killed the head of Al Qaeda, all of that. And so his age clearly isn't affecting his effectiveness. And I do hear people saying, well, you know, maybe he's not up to it. He's not a great communicator. And it's like, I don't know where the rest of these people were throughout Joe Biden's career, but like I remember in 2012 when he was out there as a for President Obama, that he was making the same gaffes, you know, mixing up the states he was in, whatever. And but that's part of Joe Biden's appeal. He doesn't speak in perfect paragraphs like Pete Buttigieg. He doesn't give these beautiful oratorical speeches like Barack Obama. But guess what? 99.9% of people don't. And that is part of his appeal because he speaks like a regular person.
2: So I think I agree, right, that Biden is authentic. And and part of the authenticity is that he sometimes makes a gaffe. The gaffe isn't, sometimes gaffe is a kind of euphemism for somebody who says something horrible that they usually hide from public view. With Biden, the gaffes where he was in favor of same-sex marriage before it was politic to say that everybody in the White House was in favor of same-sex marriage, right? So his gaffes are, showing his values, which actually often are in keeping with the values of most people, and show him to be a decent person. So I agree with that. I guess there is a, a sense that he is a more halting communicator than he was in the past. And that is, I think, different from the gaps, right?
1: And that's where I disagree a little bit as well, because again, I remember in 2012, by the end of the campaign, you know, your campaign schedule is nuts. But even before that in 2008, like he would always say, good morning, Ohio, when he's in Pennsylvania, he would mix up senators names. I just, I think that's just part of who he is. He was never a super smooth communicator. And I think to some people, it's an endearing quality. It's like the uncle Joe part of it, but like, I don't know that his ability to, you know, turn a clever phrase in an interview or give some beautiful speeches, how Joe Biden wins an election or part of his appeal. I think the fact that he is more of a regular guy has always been the thing. And, you know, I watched his interview on 60 Minutes the other night and I thought he looked pretty strong. And I thought he communicated extremely clearly on foreign policy, domestic policy and handled you know, questions about his age, about, you know, his fitness to run with a lot of strength and like, dare I say it, like a little bit of swagger. And so there's no reason right now that I see that Democrats should say, go away, Joe Biden, because he's had a very effective run. His numbers are improving. And frankly, like, The thought of what could replace him should give people a lot of pause. And he was our strongest candidate going into 2020. And I say that even as someone who backed Pete Buttigieg, like watching that general election, it was clear to me that we made the right choice with Joe Biden. And I haven't seen a compelling argument yet for why he wouldn't be the strongest candidate for 2024, especially when we know that incumbency gives you a lot of advantages.
2: It is interesting. I mean, you know, when this push to say perhaps we really need a different nominee was strongest, than when I expressed that view, part of the background music was that Biden's opinion polls were below those of the last 13 presidents, right? He was really at a record low, basically, in the whole modern era of polling, in the decades for which we had any kind of reliable polls, he was doing the worst at that time. It's interesting but that that's no longer the case. So when you look at... The 538 averages today, you see that Joe Biden at this point is underperforming Barack Obama, underperforming George W. Bush, who was very popular at the time because of the recency of 9-11, is underperforming George H.W. Bush. But at the same time, you also see that he is overperforming Donald Trump, that he's exactly even with Bill Clinton. And that he's overperforming Ronald Reagan. And one of the things that's interesting about this is that the numbers at this point of a term don't seem to bear any particular correlation with who got reelected. So George H. W. Bush had extremely strong numbers at this point. But at the same time, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, all people who got reelected quite resoundingly, had very mediocre ratings at this point in the term. So it's sort of just very hard to tell, how somebody's popularity is going to develop between now and 2024.
1: Right, exactly. And so I don't think that there is any compelling reason to say that we need another candidate. And that's why I expect Joe Biden to be the nominee. And the most likely, I say right now, and you know, in like one week or two weeks, maybe something will change, but most likely. Outcome in 2024, I think, is a rematch, as depressing as that sounds, is a rematch of 2020, where you have Joe Biden running against Donald Trump. And obviously, there are certain things that could intervene to change that. But I've seen no indication that Donald Trump is not going to run in 2024. And if that's the case, you know, Joe Biden, again, I think is a good candidate to put up against him.
2: Lovely, something to look forward to. I want to end with the following question, which is But I think it's always tempting to make your views about what the right policy is or the right kind of political spaces and your views about who the best candidate is align, right? So it's easy for me to look and criticize a lot of sort of robust progressives and say, you know, not only do they support candidates like AOC or Bernie Sanders, who I see somewhat critically, they then also go on and claim that they are the ones who have the best chance of beating Donald Trump, whoever it is. Now, that's also true in my sort of political space, right? I'm, I suppose, a moderate Democrat of sorts. And, you know, I tend to think that those policies would be good for the country. I also tend to think that those candidates are likely to win. And so, you know, you can play that game with many people. What do you think is a candidate who Uh, you don't agree with who think is a very, very strong candidate? Or what do you think is a policy on which you want to say, hey, like, my view is do X, but you know what, the policy that is actually electorally viable just is not X, it's Y. Where does your instinct about what the right thing to do and your instinct about what the winning message, what the winning position is, diverge?
1: When I look at some of the candidates who are doing best right now and who are overperforming. It's people like Mark Kelly in Arizona, people like Raphael Warnock in Georgia, right? And as a political consultant or political advisor, sometimes you do want your candidates to go out there and just rip their opponent a new asshole and just like light the world on fire. And you want to see them just like destroy Fox news in an interview or do this, really go out there and just break out the red meat. But like part of the reason why some of these candidates are able to succeed is because they don't do that. And, you know, It's not the sexiest thing in the world, but sometimes voters reward candidates who are sort of boring, who don't embrace conflict who don't try to be flashy on TV, don't try to you know, give these speeches that are you know, trying to rival Barack Obama. And we're talking about Warnock. That must be tough for him because that guy can give a speech. But why they win, why they're doing well and overperforming where they should be is because they're workhorses and they're going out there not talking about the flashiest issues. They're not taking the bait on the immigration stuff. They're going out and building, you know, Republicans for Warnock groups, Republicans for Kelly groups and just talking about healthcare costs and jobs and things like that, like the least sexy things in the world. And I think sometimes we have to understand that boring plays in politics and voters reward just simple, common decency and candidates who... As weird as this might sound, just like don't spend every day looking down on other people, looking down on people who hold different views from them. I think that is a very special quality that both Warnock and Kelly have and why they're able to sort of get crossover voters, because they don't think that everyone who voted for Trump is inherently evil or stupid and they don't talk to people that way. And they don't run around with their hair on fire, embracing radical policies
2: And that was one of the strongest qualities of Joe Biden.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, sometimes you do want to have candidates who are so exciting, who give you that thrill up your leg. But you know what? That's not always who's going to play best with voters. And that's something that not just I need to understand all the time, but that people in my industry need to understand more, which is that we need to meet voters where they are. And sometimes it means that like, it's not going to be the sexiest of strategies. It's not going to get a lot of retweets. It's not going to get you booked on cable news. It's not going to get you named a hero in liberal publications and invited to keynote all these dinners. But you know what? God damn it. It's going to help you win. And that's like how we change the trajectory of this country, how we save our country from, you know, anti-democratic forces and how we protect important rights. So that's what I got there.
2: Liz Smith, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.